I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Chris and Kim Reed from Salt Lake City, Utah. Chris and Kim spent years planting and leading churches in Sweden and Denmark. They talk about why you should find your purpose first before finding your partner, how to keep your faith in a world going away from God, the value of saving a single soul, how to avoid wasting matches on wet wood, and instead finding the inflammable few, how prayer saved their daughter's life from liver cancer, and how they've managed to have 13 people baptized during COVID in the first year of their time in Salt Lake City. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Chris and Kim, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Hi, Rob. How'd you guys become Christians? Um, I became a Christian way back in 1981 in the Boston Church of Christ. Um, I came from a very religious background, uh, raised Pennsylvania around the Amish and the Mennonites and super conservative Bible people, but being kind of a science-oriented guy and not getting answers for my questions and seeing a lot of hypocrisy, I completely rejected that and read like Buddhism. I read the Quran, I read the Bhagavad Gita, read all kinds of stuff. And I came back around that the Bible's true, but then I couldn't find any church following it. Mm. So I, I prayed, I actually was actively looking church shopping for a church of the, the book of Acts before there was a denomination. I prayed that every morning and every night. And I ended up going to school in Boston, not knowing about the church or anything. Um, and I had been praying that for eight months uh, about a church in the book of Acts. And that very first week, I saw a, on the dorm door of a guy down the hall from me a note about a free church bus picking up students to go to church. And I read his note, uh, and it wasn't even for me. And I said, well, I know that that can't be, you know, some major denomination. It's got to be some kind of Bible church that does that sort of thing. So I went and I brought three of my friends with me to the bus stop and it turned out to be bring your neighbor day for what was then the Lexington Church of Christ. And the, the amazing thing was that sermon that day was give me that old time religion. And in the intro, as Kip started to preach, he said, who we are is we're the restoration movement trying to be the church in the book of Acts before there was denominations. He literally said my prayer in the intro. Wow. Um, I was a Christian seven weeks later, and all the three other people who came to the bus stop also got baptized. So. <laughs> okay, so what were they passing out at the bus stop? Uh, no, they weren't passing out anything. I, I saw a note on a guy's dorm door uh, down the hall for me about this church bus, and I took myself there. My, I took myself and three of my friends because I was sharing my faith already, <laughs> you know? And that, that was kind of, they, they asked me at the bus stop, they said, whose neighbor are you? And I got kind of embarrassed and I said, well, I actually read somebody else's note and uh, do I need to buy a ticket or pay something? I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I was never actually invited to this. So that's so, how it started. So you me. kind of turned yourself in, so to speak. I did. That's crazy. Okay. That's, that's amazing that you were looking so specifically like that. That's, that's pretty powerful. How about you, Kim? 
unlike my husband who turned himself in, I, I'm more like the um, person in the parable where um, I stumbled upon the Pearl of Great Price. So I grew up atheistic. Uh, my family's, they're kind of intellectual granola hippie people in a way um, up from Northern New England. And I didn't know a single person that went to church in my family or friends. I didn't know, I just never held the Bible. I just, it was just foreign to me. I didn't even think about God. So um, yeah, my, and, and my parents are very, um, they encouraged us to do a lot of living, like try it, just don't indulge in it. So I did a lot of living as a young person, trying and experimenting with relationships, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole nine yards, nature, adventure. And um, I think I, I wound up at university and, and at that point, I just felt like, I have done everything exciting you can do. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the purpose of life. And that was what drove me is I needed to figure out why I was here. Um, I just saw different people living for different things and I tried it and it just didn't fulfill. So my best friend, um, after a, a trip to Colorado invited me and she pursued me for two years. And I absolutely did not want to become a Christian. I was looking for something, but not Christianity. But through time and through friendship and the love of the church, I, I just began to see the love of the church and the love in the Bible. And they, they went together and it, it gave me a picture of God. And so I eventually surrendered after much consternation <laughs> and got baptized. And that was the Boulder Church? What, what no. church was this? I became a Christian in Boston in 1982. Oh, you guys became Christians really close together. Yeah. yeah, he was one year before I was. We were in the campus ministry in Boston. That that's how we met. So we were. She was baptized in the campus ministry at Northeastern University uh, a year after me. Yeah. Um, were you? Where were you going to school, Chris? But Northeastern. Same. I was okay. studying electrical engineering, and she was speech pathology. Wow. Okay. So you guys just started dating. How'd you guys end up getting married? Uh, how did we end up getting married? Well, I. <laughs> I, had, I was one of um, the enthusiastic but ignorant fools in the beginning who had taken a Pauline vow not to get married for the kingdom of God. <laughs> and another guy who ended up getting married named Andy Fleming. It was his smart idea to do that so that we could, we could focus on evangelizing the Soviet Union underground and not have to worry about being attached to our wives. That was the original goal. So I no sooner took that vow than uh, this this young woman, uh, I got started to get to know her. And I was like, Oh, man, how's that going to work out? So (laughs) luckily, somebody shared me a proverb about if you know, make a hasty vow, and you're kind of an idiot, you can, you know, go to God and kind of take it back. And I was very, very happy for that verse. Right. Um, But yeah, that's we we were dating. But I actually thought uh, I got asked to go into the mission field, right as we're getting to go to Sweden, right as we're getting interested. And I was praying for God to open and shut the door. I thought that meant a shut door, okay? Um, And what I will highly recommend to people trying to find their life's partner is figure out what God's calling you to do first before you find a person. Mm. And then God will give you the right person for the calling. Um, Because I I was convinced, okay, I need to go to Sweden. um, And that probably means no to this great young woman named Kim. Um, But Kim, our last date together, she said, why don't we write letters back and forth once a week because it was before emails and before all that stuff right so it was paper letters a lot like i guess 
the New Testament was written and you can fall in love with God through letters written, right? Yeah, we were, we were apart from each other, 18 months of our dating relationship. And we did it through letters. We were in different countries. Wow. It's amazing. The written word, the power of the written word. Yeah. And that, uh, what turned out to be, I thought, a with the willingness for the door to be closed, I think God opened it up for us to have a relationship that I didn't have to make this relationship work. And Kim felt the same way. And she was very willing to do the mission field anywhere. She wanted to go into the mission field. So. Wow. Okay. So you, you had gone to Sweden at this point, you're writing back to Boston from Sweden. What year did you guys, what year did you go to Sweden? Um, us and Paris were the first sent out by Boston foreign language speaking. So it was 1984. Wow. Okay. little, little side trip here. What was it like in Boston in the early eighties? I ask everyone who was converted during that time. What, what do you remember from the atmosphere? What was going on there? One thing that I remember very distinctly is everybody was signing up to go on a mission team mm -hmm. somewhere. <laughs> All, it, it didn't even matter where. Like I didn't, I signed up for Sweden because I just wanted to go somewhere. We were very inspired to um, go and make a difference in the world and take that adventure stepping out of university so but there were hundreds and hundreds of college students doing that mm -hmm. and even the the families I remember were so active in either supporting or hearing your story or or helping with the parents as you're embarking you know on your mission um it was a mindset that was there it was almost like people came up out of the waters of the baptistry asking what language should they start learning seriously <laughs> it was almost yeah. like that level yeah you know and um I think when I, this first time I met a church that Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when I grew, I grew up in a very old traditional historic 200 year old church building that had that painted above the pulpit in the church, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And there it was every Sunday, but it was probably the most ignored verse that our church ever had. And when I got to Boston, it wasn't even called the Boston church, but this, this crazy leadership team actually thought, well, this is for us to obey. And it's not for some other church to worry about Africa. We're, we have responsibility to do the world. You know, and I'd never met a church like that. I met a church that let's do our neighborhood, maybe a, a portion of the city. I've never even met a church that said, let's take on the whole city, let alone the, world. the, whole, the whole world. Mm -hmm. And um, that was just unbelievably infectious. And we, we thought doable. Mm, that's amazing. Okay. So what, what year did you guys get married? 86. 86. Okay. So you took off in 84, wrote letters. That's pretty awesome. Do you have those letters preserved? Do you guys still have those letters? Wow. Yeah. Okay. You got to write a book about that. That would be awesome. That's very powerful. How many kids do you guys have? We have three, uh, two biological, and then we got inspired at uh, the Manila Conference through Hope about adoption. So we embarked on the journey of adoption and uh, received a little girl from China. Oh, that's great. I remember that. I remember that conference and there was a big, big push toward adoption. Mm -hmm. But going back to what you said earlier, I remember as a young Christian, I was converted at Berkeley in the Bay Area. And I remember that was the atmosphere too. Tom Brown was leading our church and I signed up for the... Uh, the Ma no, Munich, Germany mission team. Oh, and I was going there. Tom Marks was leading the church and Henning Droger were, were 
the leaders of that mission planting, I was all jazzed because I'd taken German in, in high school and college. So I thought this is my calling. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I ended up not going, I can't remember what happened, but, um, went, went a different path, ended up going to Japan, but I, there was such a, I love that there was such an attitude among the whole community, like, let's go someplace, let's go out and preach the gospel. So that's great. Okay. So you, you went to Sweden in 1984. Let, let's just give us an overview of where you've been. Cause I know you've been all over the place. Just give us from 84 to now, where have you been? Well, I had um, just got offered a promotion doing research and development, working on the MX missile as an electrical engineer when they asked me to go to Sweden. So I was kind of like, well, the career door swinging open and these guys would like pay for my master's degree and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, So I could like refine killing people or (laughs) saving people. So it's kind of a no brainer. So I went into the ministry literally the week they offered me that promotion. Um, and I had one month training as an intern in Boston before they sent me out. Um, so that I've been in the ministry technically July, it'll make it, I guess, 38 years. So, um, and so then we were, we were there until 1990, Kim and I got married and stayed there, um, and had our first two children in Sweden. And then the church there sent us out to Copenhagen, Denmark to plant that church. Uh, us and nine other Christians went out and planted that church and were there for a couple of years. And then we got asked to come back to the States. Um, and we were in Philadelphia, leading the church there for four years. Then we were with the Washington, D.C. church in one of the regions, either Baltimore or Montgomery County or the campus for the next eight years. Finally, we, the first time we chose where we wanted to be in the ministry, we chose to move to Denver when we got that opportunity and worked in the ministry there for about five years. What year, was, was, what, that we what year was that that you went to Denver? 2004 to 2009, we were in Denver. Okay, got it. And then we, we chose to go back to the mission field uh, 2009 till um, middle of last year, 2021. We were in Sweden again. Okay. Why'd you go back? I mean, you'd already been over there and you've been back here in the States a long time. Uh, why? I'm mean, 2009 is let's just go back there. What, what? Well, I, when we left Copenhagen in 1992, we left a baby church. We'd, we'd gone there with 11 people. And in 18 months, the church grew to 56. Wow. And and eight of the original team had moved back to Sweden. So if they'd have stayed, we'd have been in the 60s somewhere. But then we had to leave the church in the hands of a year-old Christian leading the church. And uh, we also felt that we'd left Stockholm in less than a mature situation. And then these churches were planting, of course, they, they went on to plant the Oslo Norway Church, um, the Helsinki Finland Church, and Reykjavik, Iceland, all got planted out of these immature churches. And so it was a burden on our hearts um, because those churches did not really grow after the original planting. They actually began to shrink. And there was a lot of um, pain, people seeing people walk away. Um, So I'd been praying for 17 years uh, every day about being able to go back there uh, and tried to keep my, my Swedish up by quiet times in Swedish, 
probably five days a week. I would do Swedish or Danish to try and keep it alive. Didn't know if we'd ever get a chance to go back there. Um, so that was kind of the impetus that I, I remember that we, the, the, the elders in Denver were gracious enough to let us go back for a summer just to help over in Copenhagen. And the very first midweek that I came back to Denver after being in, in Denmark for like two and a half months, I looked around at a sparsely attended midweek had more Christians in it than all of the five Nordic countries put together and more maturity. You had more ex ministry people and elders and teachers in a sparsely attended one region midweek of the Denver church than all the Nordics put together. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like somebody has got to go back there and help, help these churches that has some experience that that was, that's what was on my mind the whole time. Wow. How about you, Kim? Well, I wasn't exactly super fired up to go, <laughs> uh, uh, but I, um, I do have a heart for the people. And so we, we originally decided to go for five years and I thought, well, I'll go and just give a hundred percent. And of course, once you dive into a ministry, it becomes your life. And so I just, we just had an incredible 12 years there this past 12 years. And, um, growth and friendship and experience and they're truly our heart so i guess you know god changed my heart um and whatever you wherever you invest your heart or your treasure there your heart will follow so that's what happened for me okay so you go a second time why did you come back to the states well because we we got advice you know we're approaching you know we're not going to retire anytime soon but we are approaching retirement age and so we were getting seeking advice from different beloved ministers around the kingdom and kind of came up with, they said, just really think through how you want to spend your last working decade mm-hmm. and maybe some of the values that are important when you do maybe come off the payroll. So we, we spent a year putting together a list of what was important to us and prayed about it a lot. And um, some of those, some of the things on the list were, we wanted to be in a very fruitful ministry and really raise up young people. We wanted to be in a place that beckoned us outside so we wouldn't grow old and sit in a rocking chair, but that we'd be active in our older age for health reasons. We wanted to be near our children. I think that's one of the motivators. Had we stayed, it might have been, it might have been, you never know, unsustainable um, to keep traveling back to the States to see family when on a pay scale like that. So we felt like we should probably come be a little bit closer. Um, what, what were some of the other things on our list? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing that we started praying about is we wanted it to be our most fruitful decade of our lives, mm. period. You know, in, in terms of sheer number of people, we helped become Christians and number of people we raised up and put in the ministry. Um, yeah. Cause the tendency would be to kind of slow down and now I'm the wise sage and um, let's just dispense advice and have the occasional baptism. But yeah. I don't, I don't think that's what God calls us to do. I think Paul turned, turned up the heat as he ended his ministry career. And, and really, I mean, the second Timothy is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. So we wanted to do that. And um, we also wanted to make sure we were with a, a ministry that had a conservative view of the Bible and really held that as the high authority so that we could be an outpost of keeping um, restoration Christianity uh, alive. And, and not become just another denomination. And, um, you know, that was, those were some of the things there. And, and, I, and we also wanted to be in a place where I think 
getting out of the ministry and retiring are big steps in life anyway when they come. So we wanted to be in a place where we could probably retire having worked in the ministry there 10 years or so. And we have our best friends there. We've raised up people in the ministry so it feels like home. And we can go into a retired phase, really active and plugged in with best friends and ministry that we built. That was the other thing we were thinking about. So does that wow. make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So I this I, I really appreciate I, I wanted to have you on this show last summer, actually, about a year ago. And I think you'd just come back and I was like, oh, great. I really want to talk to the Reeds because they just came back from the mission field. And I remember getting a hold of you and you're like, nope, can't do it. You know, and I wanted you to come to the small church leadership conference as well. And you're like, nope, I'm going to baptize 20 this fall. And then then maybe I'll think about it at that point. And so <laughs> I just remember going, Oh, this guy's really got some serious goals. I was chal- I was convicted. I was like, wow, what am I doing? So I look forward to talking to you more about that. But I definitely sense that desire to make this your most fruitful period of your life. So that's awesome. What I want to know, going to Sweden, Denmark, I mean, those places are awesome for vacation, for travel. For missionary work, I go, whoa, that's now I lived in Japan for 10 years, so that's not exactly a cup of tea either. But I just go, how'd you do it? I mean, not just once, but twice. How do you keep your faith in a post-Christian culture? Because certainly that's the way the States is going more and more so. But um, I mean, that's that's a that seems like a very challenging and sterile, spiritually sterile environment to go to. How'd you do it? How'd you keep your faith? Yeah, uh, I think that's a really good question. And um, I don't know if God prepared me as, a, as the right kind of person. Um, but because I grew up agnostic atheistic, which is how everybody is over there, um, I can relate to them. So it's it may, even though these are beautiful countries and they function well and they have everything, they're very wealthy, like Japan, the, the issue that the, what they don't have are the ability to build long lasting. I mean, I think they're more relationally challenged. So for example, people will start a family, they don't necessarily get married, they will start a family, and then maybe go 10 years, and then they'll start another family. And even the IKEA commercials make it seem okay, where the where the children will go from one household, one week, and then they go to the separated other partner for the next week and then make the rooms exactly the same to to make it, to minimize it, that it's okay. But you really do see underneath it all, I think as I felt a true emptiness. Um, And I think for me, I just really felt like the only answer really is Jesus has those secrets to relationships, to purpose Mm -hmm. and to our whole existence. And I think that those people are, thinking about those things, especially the youth, they're, they're, they're really, there's like a spiritual revival in a way, not necessarily Christian, but spiritual, if you will, they're Mm -hmm. seeking. Mm -hmm. So that motivated me a lot that, and even it it was uh, not uncommon to talk to people and they, they like Jesus. They just don't (laughs) like church. And so therefore they can't, it's hard for them to, to cross that hurdle initially, but they, they're aware of the teachings of Jesus and how they're amazing. So I met a lot of people like that. Mm. So. Yeah, I think for me, um, I 
I upped my quiet times. Like I just reading the Bible a lot, a lot of the Bible. Um, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. I think there's a, too much podcast Christianity out there, not knocking this podcast, but I'm saying, you know, they, they listen to, you know, a guy's interpretation of the Bible instead of getting into the Bible and reading the, the, just the words themselves and taking notes, the old thing, get a, a journal, get a pen, write down your thoughts, meditate after you read, pray about what can I do about this today? How can I apply this today? Just those basic exercises. And then the other thing, staying in the mission really helps sharpen your faith because you're sharing it all the time. Yeah. You're exercising it all the time. And I did not get beat down by the atheism of the people because when you're in the mission, you're up close face to face with people who have no answers. Mm -hmm. They're not happy. They're confused. And if anything, it makes me walk away super grateful every time. Um, it, it gets exhausting having to explain that why you believe in the resurrection from the dead and that Jesus is divine and all that. But it's also exhilarating and people don't have any counters to that at all. So when you're in the mission, it, uh, it didn't make me question my faith. I saw emptiness and confusion and no answers. And it just reinforced, we have the answers. This is thanks to Jesus, you know, kind hmm. of thing. That's incredible. Okay. But it must have been challenging, though, because I remember back in the 80s, I mean, not that this was right. It was like, if you don't have like 100 baptisms in the first year, you're you're really struggling. You you guys were going to uh, a field that's total, one of the toughest. I mean, you're not going to the Philippines or something like that. You're going to a place where it's like, or even like Russia, right, when it opened up. I mean, like 800 baptisms in a year. How did you handle that emotionally? That must have been really challenging for you to to go, okay, we've got to have our own standard of excellence and, and expectations. This is this is in particular for the older disciples that kind of understood that there was a very high expectation for mission plantings back in the day. Well, let me just say one thing. I'm going to let you share. I remember um, we've all talked this through since then, but back in the day, you got moved around by other people's decisions. And we were compared in Copenhagen. It was the same year that Lagos, Nigeria was planted. And, and we went to a conference where they literally said, all fields are equally open. Don't say the culture has anything to do with that at all. Oh and gosh. if you're, if you're not doing what Lagos, Nigeria is doing, you, you're probably in sin and lack faith. Oh my gosh. And, and so it, that was extremely discouraging. And we were, we were kind of good hearted, but I, part of me was like, really? I mean, I, I think there's a significant difference here, but maybe I'm making excuses for myself. Ugh. So I had inner, I had inner turmoil yeah. over that whole thing. Well, I mean, you could literally, as we did every day, five days a week, evangelize eight hour a day, eight hours a day. And literally maybe you would get one phone number. Like that's what it was like. So I think, I think the way I would answer that question for anybody, young disciple or old, is that God sifts us. And I think you have to really discern why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and do I really believe? And I think we kept going because, yeah, we were compared, but we, we knew that if you really, if we love people, God is pleased mm -hmm. and we are, we are trying and it's God that gives the growth. And we, we right. really learned that lesson. Mm -hmm. And, and there are, there have been very fruitful times in the Nordics, but there was a time when, when you did feel compared, you were compared in that way. And I just think it was a sifting as, as has happened in my life through different events. Like, am I really going to stick this out or am I going to give up each time I'm faced with the why of what I do? Right. 
And I think the other thing is, um, and I'm very grateful for this because it's made, it's a character change that I shifted in value, not the number of souls, but the value of a soul. And, you know, like Luke 15 came alive that, that um, if one sheep leaves the 99, you know, Jesus is hard as you go after that one. Uh, you know, you lose the one coin or you have the, pro the prodigal son of just one son coming back, but all of heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. And so um, making each soul a really big deal, having a really big party when somebody becomes a Christian, cherishing them, getting to know them deeply. Um, and so that's helped me where I could be much more of, let's just crank it and baptize 250 people. Mm. Um, that's, that's a glorious thing too, but it's, I think it's more the heart of, for me, more the heart of Jesus mm. to value people more deeply. Mm. Um, and so that's what happened to me, you know, and when I when we go over there now, like we just finished the, the trip three weeks ago there, seeing the faithful ones, they mean so much because right. you know how much was behind each person becoming a Christian. Right. 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 Mm. I, I'm filled with respect for you guys. Cause I know that must have been really challenging because there was so much activity at that time, so many plantings, and and there was such a high level of expectation. Um, you know, I think only in time did it become clear that hey, we've got different fields, different air, um, levels of acceptance of the gospel. Just one more question about that. I this is something I've wondered, and I, I want to talk to you about it. I felt like in Japan, like there's like a veil over people's minds. It's, it's, you know, you know, where Paul says Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. I, I just right. felt that so strongly, like what is going on here? Like how can people be so, so universally blind to the gospel? How, any thoughts on that? I mean, and this is not a, it's just a question. I wonder, I go, what, what is going on when a whole country can't see the gospel? Can't, can't I mean I know Sweden had a big, it had a Christian period for sure. Germany and those period there was a period. It, it has the foundation. I'm sure, sure it's gone. But what's your view on that? Like how how do you view why that happens? Um. Well, I mean, a lot of times evangelizing out there, um, cold contact stuff and and all that. It, it did amaze me, like I would ask people, um, you know, we, we change it from Bible talk, we call it life talk, we talk about ethical issues, we talk about um, faith, we talk about um, life issues, and so would you be interested in coming, and I, a lot of times, no, well, do you believe in anything? Oh, I believe in myself. Oh, do you worship yourself? I stopped saying that because people thought I was attacking them when I said that. <laughs> Um, but, but then I said, I, then I started asking questions like, well, do you think you have a soul? And it shocked me mm. how many people have never thought of that question, right? Highly educated. They never, I've never thought of that. What? I mean, how could, and I, um, I, I only have a, a couple of thoughts after all my years. Why one there's typically the pendulum of reaction in human history. And yes, it was a massively Christian country at one time, Lutheran, and it was a state religion. When you were born in Sweden, you were automatically in the Lutheran church. And they took 1% of your gross income in tax automatically. You had to go through a legal process to extricate yourself from the church. 
that Lutheran church was famous for being extremely strict and condemning, um, very hard line on their moral stance, and it was a shame culture, made you feel completely ashamed if you uh, were a woman who got pregnant in wedlock or something like that. It was extremely shame culture. And I think that when um, the sexual revolution came in the 50s and 60s, Sweden was already starting to, to lean away from that whole thing and reject it. And so they've gone the whole other, other spectrum of um, don't judge anybody, don't judge anything. It's got some of the most liberal views in the world of the gender issues, of alternative lifestyle, all that kind of stuff. They've thrown off all restraint. Um, it had, it's had the biggest um, pride festival in one of the biggest one in the whole world, way before they were happening anywhere in the world, all that stuff. I think the second thing is they're ex so extremely wealthy that they literally don't feel the need. Um, you, you, you know, I don't, I don't need God. You know, we, we had neighbors when we had an open house for, to get to know people. They came over and um, we had like almost 50 neighbors. And one of them literally told me, uh, just so you know, I don't need any more friends, but thanks for having us over. And that was the last time we saw him. <laughs> I mean, as if that's the way you gauge it. Do I feel this need or not? You know, oh my I gosh. Mean, yeah. Wow. I'd, I'd like to just add one, just real quick um, observation, and you can feel it here too, but that scripture in Matthew where Jesus says, um, you know, where the love of most will grow cold. And I think in, in those societies, I mean, it's quite refreshing to be back in America because people greet you, but mm -hmm. there you don't greet people. You don't talk to people. There's It's cold, cold socially until you break through. And I I think it is quite a quite a field for light and for the gospel because you know the Christians were the light of the earth, right? If That's we, right. And and but I think it's the way of humanity. It's going to grow. The love of most is going to grow cold, and you really see its progression in the Nordic countries. Wow. Well, thank you for talking about that. I just it's there's a spiritual force. I mean, there's definitely spiritual yeah. forces at work that it just can't be described. I go, it's powerful when you go to a country like Japan and there's so there's so little if any spiritual influence it's crazy it's like a spiritual wasteland going there anyway I don't want to get off too too much off the topic what tips or tools you mentioned a little bit Chris about reading more of the Bible do you use to keep your faith in God strong because we're going through a challenging time in the wake of COVID and a lot of people are discouraged, and I think a lot of ministers are, are really getting hammered from criticism and all sorts of stuff. What do you do to keep up, to keep your spirits up, to keep positive, to keep faithful? I, I thought about that question as you, as you sent it. Um, I think for me, I, I try to find one lightable woman in my ministry that, that I can, I mean, not that many aren't lightable, but one who I can walk with and, and impart the vision to. And that even in COVID, even shutdown, when somebody partners that way with you in, at the heart level, where they, they have that desire to change the world and they want to learn, I find that to be very inspiring. And it, it helps me to keep my focus on um, passing it on. Okay. When you say lightable woman, what, Lightable. Flammable, I flammable, call it. Flammable. Okay. I want to change the world. I want to. Okay. Do, I don't even, you know, somebody who's who doesn't, um, somebody who just wants to give their life for the cause. That's awesome. And um, 
it's not always obvious, but praying about it specifically and just find even in, in the midst of COVID, you can see the people who, who realize God is bigger than COVID. Mm-hmm. You, you, you begin to see their faith. And, right. and I think that's the thing that I gained faith even from their faith mm-hmm. in that sense. Wow. And I, I think if, if, if I'm talking to like the ministers of churches, I've met far, far too many of my colleagues in the ministry spend time throwing matches on wet wood mm-hmm. and they get themselves and they, and they focus on the people who aren't doing stuff. Who, who cares? Okay. I, I would much rather find the flammable few and you have to be an example yourself of loving the word, loving to pray, loving to help the poor and loving to share your faith, you know? Um, and the people who are flammable that fires them up, you know? Um, I, I see so many guys pull back from the mission. They don't go out and share their faith, but they focus on problems in the church and whatever you focus on grows, you focus on problems, it grows, Right. You focus on lost people, you find lost people who are open, but um, the f- flammable few in the church, they get they get fired up by that. And when that happens, then the other people who might be wet wood, they see you over at the edge of your cave by your campfire roasting marshmallows and enjoying. <laughs> and so they come out of their caves and they go, what's going on over there in that cave? But th- and that, that's the vision I go around with thinking all the time, right? Um, and I know what gets me fired up. I'll tell you when I'm down, honestly, and I don't, I don't want to sound like a legalist or anything, but when I go out, like walk out on campus or something like that and share my faith, I don't care if I got a bunch of rejections for a solid hour. I, I just feel fired up, right. you know? Right. I have an example. Um, so during, during the lockdowns in Sweden, um, we, we were criticized by the whole world. It wasn't quite the lockdown, but there was a period where people weren't, going to work they weren't really going anywhere the church and the meeting. church really responded to that in that same way and so what i mean about the the flammable finding the one they you know there were a few and i remember in our our family group that we were in there were a couple sisters especially one and we're like you know what let's just go out after work get off our computers and let's just wear our masks and talk to people across the street and just talk about being friendly. Let's just say people are so enclosed. It's been a year. And um, lo and behold, if we didn't, and and so we would be quite a distance kind of yelling, you know, Hey, we're just, but we met a woman who just got baptized like three or four months ago after we had left from that time. But we would just go and talk to people. If we could share about God, great. If not, we just wanted to break the ice. I think that's the point and talk. And, um, the, uh, others gave into a lot of fear, but there are, there are, there were the few that, that were, were willing. So that's a great, uh, great practical. Yeah. We were inspired of doing that by actually Mohan and Helen who were leading yeah. the church in London and Mohan would go out at, right when people were getting off from work and he would yell across the street, how are you doing in COVID? Yeah. And the, the last year of COVID, his family of four was fruitful five times with people they met. Yeah. Oh, my that gosh. Day, yelling across the street <laughs> in London. So I'm like, if they can do that, we can certainly do that in Sweden. Yeah. And, and yeah. That's really so. Fun. Wow. Okay. So what? let me ask this. What are some of the most inspiring stories that you saw where you, you really sensed God's presence, his blessing? him clearly working. There's a lot of them. What were you, what were you speaking with? In, in the Nordic country specifically or? Anywhere with God or? Anywhere. You've, you've had a long career. Where, what stands out to you? You go, whoa, I really s- sense God working there. It's happened a couple times, I think. 
um, well, many times, but um, more recent examples, um, you want to talk about the life talks in Kung Solman and then well, here in, in uh, the specifically like blatantly supernatural. Uh, the first one I, I think about for me, and then we'll get to we'll get to the new the newest ones. Um, I, like I said before, was planning to go to the what was then the Soviet Union with Andy Fleming, right? And as single men and try to evangelize underground. So that was a really big dream. In the meantime, we what got sent to Sweden and then Denmark. And while we we're in Denmark, that's when Andy got the green light. Go go to Moscow and plant the church. That was back in the day of the fastest communication you had was a fax machine. And I still remember in my uh, my office in Copenhagen, you get this fax coming out. And it was Andy announcing, we're getting the team together. We're going to Moscow, man. And I was so sad that I wasn't with him. And I couldn't leave these baby Christians. I had all kinds of baby Christians and diapers flying everywhere. So I went out immediately to my prayer place. And it was raining. It was like this big heath out behind our apartment. And I prayed, and I'm shouting in the rain specifically for God, lead me to a young Moscovite man who can be an, an aide on Andy's team and can become appointed an evangelist, somebody who's both a scholar and an athlete and a warrior. That was very specific. Mm. Um, the, the, the next day, that was about four in the afternoon, next day at eight in the morning, as I'm going on the commuter train to get to um, university, I see a big guy on the platform who didn't look sweet or Danish at all. Uh, I walk up to him and he couldn't understand Danish and his name was Misha Rukovcik. Um, he was a Moscovite who was getting his PhD in physics from the University of Copenhagen. Both his parents had been on the 64 Olympic team. He himself <laughs> was on the Soviet national water polo team as a goalie. He was quite an athlete. He was an incredible scholar. He was baptized in about three months and went back to help Andy on the team. And he was the one who preached the first couple of years through Andy until Andy was good enough in Russian to speak. And Andy said he was part of several hundred baptisms that first year on the team. And it, what was amazing is Chris, because Chris, uh, we were getting off the train. Chris he was, got on, he got on the train. But you were getting off. And he, he didn't, Chris didn't have time to get his number. The door was closing and he's like, well, here's the address with a slip of paper. So Mikael showed up at our house two days later for a Bible talk without any number. He just came on his own. I mean, it was amazing. Yep. That's totally. A, that's incredible. What a story. So you couldn't go, but you were able to send yep. someone right. super yep. significant in the, in the history of that early church. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. Thank you for sharing that, Kim. Um, well, uh, um, Teddy Bernardini's one. Different, different miraculous. Okay. Uh, um, this is when we were leading the church in Philly and I had two small kids and we were kind of always working with the campus. So it ended up being that sometimes I felt my kids don't have the, the friends, you know, we're not in the family ministry. So I decided to go on a fast from salsa and chips, a serious fast. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm serious at night, no salsa, no chips, and really just committed to God in prayer that I would meet someone who had kids exactly the same ages as my kids. And so I was doing that and kept to it. And I think the faith behind it praying. And then, um, so I went to a, I think it was like a parent teacher conference or something. And I was talking with a woman and sharing about 
our international Bring Your Neighbor Day and just on my travels around the world. And she just grabbed a hold of me and she's like, tell me more about your church. I am looking. So long story short, she became, she, she has two children, the exact gender and, and ages of my two at that time. And she was really seeking and became a Christian, Teddy Bernardini, and she's a doctor um, and a nephrologist. So has since worked with Hope in Philly, just been really a, a wonderful family. And eight years later, her architect husband, this, this gives me faith for the women who are holding out. We, it took him eight years, but he finally, with the help of the Gimples, became a Christian. We had moved on. And I just think about the way they love that family, um, share their share their life. And I think Ron, his name was, really saw um, and was converted. That's so amazing. That was really cool. The power of specific prayers. So that was when you were living in Boston? In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Okay, Philadelphia. Okay, great. Wow. Yeah. All right. So... Can you share about a time when you wondered if you'd, if you'd make it through there? Okay. A, a really tough time. Cause I think there's a lot of people that are going through tough times. And if you can share about a time when you go, Hmm, I hope we're going to make well, it through I'll, this. I'll let my wife share on this one. Cause it was the same one for both of us, but it was also another miraculous specific prayer mm -hmm. uh, that we saw God move most recently in our life in an incredibly miraculous way, but I'll yeah. let you share the story. So being on the mission field and having two children back here in America, their adult children, you know, that, that poses its challenges in terms of connection and just all that. So, but our, our one daughter um, was got a, a liver cancer diagnosis and was scheduled for a liver transplant, which is bas basically a death sentence because they, you know, they maybe last five years. Um, so that was, and we were still over there. So that was a really low point, like, and they're on their journey. She's also on her journey. So even thinking of that, it just was a time where we felt like, what are we doing? And so we just, we just implored the whole world, anybody we knew to pray for her and disciples were praying all around the world for this girl, Vanessa. And the Nordics and even had a fasting day for her, which we didn't we fasted, ask them to do. Yeah. Prayed. It was like, unbelievable. Um, and we, we, every, every prayer time we entered every prayer time on the phone, like every contact, we would always stop and pray. Well, when we came back to have the big meeting that we were going to have this big meeting with her doctors about this liver transplant, this was during COVID. So I wasn't even able to go. I had to listen in on zoom or on the phone. Um, Chris was in there that he pulls out the charts. She's sitting there and he said, they, they had just done. <laughs> so they had done this, this testing over a couple of period year, years of time. And she is at end stage liver disease. And you know, the clock is ticking. If you don't get it, we were going to hear if she doesn't get a liver within six to eight months, she's dead. If she's got a year, she's got four months. That's what we were going to hear. So they did a whole battery of tests that week where she was kind of inpatient and they did all kinds of extensive stuff to finally figure out where on the national registry she'll be put on the list. So then he opens up the, the latest charts and everything else. He talks to the secretary several times. They're back and forth in and out of the room. And uh, then he goes, okay, let me tell you something. Um, according to these charts, you have absolutely no liver disease of any kind. There's no indicator of any disease. There's no enzyme that's off. Every single reading is in the normal category. There's no way I can put you on the list. You don't appear to be sick. So- Unbelievable. It was oh unbelievable. My, oh my gosh. I mean, 
Yes. Or speechless. Speechless. Like, absolutely speechless. And so. And then, so to continue on with that, she previously was also told that she would never be able to get pregnant. Well, the amazing news is she's been scanned every three months, turning into every six months, turning into a year. Clear, clear, clear. Her scans are clear. She was able to get pregnant and got pregnant with identical twin girls. And just, what, three weeks ago, they were born. And she's doing great. And she has these two healthy, they're preemies, but she has these lovely girls. And again, it's there was more to that story, but the, just the specific prayer and everybody praying. I, I think my own personal faith has grown about really how, how close God is to us. Right. That's how, right. That he's not a distant God, but that he's, he's near to our hearts and, and to those we love. And we've got to persevere yeah. in prayer. Wow. And for all those people and all the times that you pray specifically about cancer or a yeah. loved one and they die... I, I mean, my answer to that, and this is what it's happened to me, is like, uh, this was such a specific, powerful, immediate answer yeah. that it made me convinced for all the times that God said no to my requests, mm. that was very specifically for a reason as well, because mm-hmm. he is fully capable of answering these things. Yeah. And he is a good and gracious God. Mm. And where he has said no, that wasn't, oh, I guess prayer doesn't work. No, he was right there. He heard it. And if it was in line with his will, which involves way more than us, it involves all the other people, the doctors involved, other people in church, other churches, it's way bigger than just me involved. Yeah. And he saw all of that. And he said, no, it, that, that specific answer made me that much more confident about all the previous no's mm. that had happened. Wow. As well. That's so, very powerful. So Chris, I, I just have to ask, I mean, was there a misdiagnosis with your daughter's liver disease? I mean, could there have been like, maybe no. they were looking at the wrong charts or something initially? Well, that, that's how my daughter reacted in the room. She, she got really angry because she had braced herself for this terrible news. And when the doctor said, you know, that there's nothing in here, she said, it's the wrong file. And she exploded on the guy. He goes, I'm, I'm looking at your file and I have all the old images that show your cancer. It's in this same file. Okay. So literally, that's why he didn't, what he had said back and forth to the secretary several times is, do you have the wrong file? Go and check a second time. Is there another Vanessa Reed, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And so there, there wasn't, and this was her file. And it's a big, thick file. So you can see all the other stuff was extremely bad news. And then transformed. That's Shit. incredible. So, what, how, did your, how did your daughter respond? I mean, how do you, how do you respond to that? I, well, I told the guy, I said, you know, um, we've had uh, over 30 churches in Europe praying for her. And some of the guys even initiated a day of fasting just for her. And, um, I think that that's what happened. And he looked at me and he goes, I'm actually a man of faith myself. And I've only seen this happen another couple times in all of my career with this. And both cases, it was tied with a lot of people praying. That's what he told me in front of her. Mm. And so she's, she, she gives God the glory on these things. Mm-hmm. She really does. She goes, it must be that. And holding with her babies and stuff. Um, they thought she'd lose the babies. It was really risky. She was in the hospital for the last two, two, and months. A, two, two months, right? And they, and so we all started praying again. And she just kept telling the doctors, it's going to be okay. My parents' friends are praying. That, that's I'm what she kept saying. I'm your miracle patient, she said. That's you what know, she'd say. She's known across the floor. I'm the miracle patient. patient. And it's been that way. Her twins had um, 
twin to twin transfusion. If people, you can Google that and find out what that is. But yeah, it was kind of scary there for a while. So wow, that's amazing. What what a story. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about you're in Sweden for twelve years. This on this last missionary journey, you came back to the U.S. Why Salt Lake City, and and how's it been since you got back? Like what what's it like coming back to the United States from uh, Northern Europe? Well, we did. We had no idea where we were going to end up. We truly, we didn't have it pegged at all. We we were kind of hoping somewhere in the West because two of our kids are there. But we really were kind of open. Um, and it, and again, we made that that specific prayer list of seven things. And so we were. It was actually wasn't it on that time when Vanessa was it? Yeah, we. It was the time that we came back for this visit yeah. to find out how long she had to live that while we're back in the States, we get a call um, that the Salt Lake City Church would like to interview us. And I got angry. I'm like, what kind of insensitive people would talk to us during a time that we could find out when our daughter's going to die? I mean, I was like, no, I'm not going on an interview. I don't have my resume. We've not thought about it. Salt Lake, are you kidding me? It's Mormon land. I, 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 no, I'm not interested. Right. But we- but we ended up, we were encouraged. So we listened to advice. We ended up going on the interview and we, we show up in our interview and we're just like, we hadn't heard the news. We had not heard the news. We so still thought she was going to die. The interview was before the, the doctor time. And so we kind of walk in kind of with our tail between our legs and it didn't even have clothes. We, I mean, we were just not prepared for an interview, but it was magical. It was like, we were all in COVID, six feet apart with masks on, talking to each other in a hotel room. And it was we met with the core <laughs> leader team and we just laughed and we prayed and we answered, got to know each other. And it just, it just was really special in what happened in that room, just the connection that we all made. And so we left there and we certainly prayed a lot about it. And we decided this, this meet, this is this is the seventh prayer of our seven things. You know, it was, it was truly amazing and we've loved it. We've loved being here and mm-hmm. we love the church and we love the core leader team. And yeah, it's, it's an older church. It's, it's a rebuild and it has a lot that a lot of needs, but I wanted to share one cool thing, mm-hmm. miracle thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you asked um, what's it been like, do you want to share about the Mormons or the life talk? Which part? Um, well, I mean, it, we tra- started off, the church was, we originally thought it was somewhere in the 80s, but then when we got here and we kind of sorted through things, it turned out that the church was more like 56, 57, uh, which was, that was okay. Uh, now the church is uh, all 69. So we've had, thir- we've been here a year, we've had 13 baptisms, um, some people have moved in, some people have moved out, we've had to sort through some things on the membership there. Um, and there's some, a couple a, a one from a Mormon background has already made that decision. A second woman is on her way. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's what I wanted to share about is that you really see God is working here. Like it, it, it has been a more, a, a stronghold for Mormonism, but people are leaving by the droves. And, and some of the studies that I've had with women, I asked them, so what, why, are, why do you think people are starting to leave? And she said, well, of course, it's the internet. All of a sudden, they can talk to each other and they're questioning in forums. They're having discussions and they're questioning some of the practices and they're realizing, wait a minute, this makes no sense. So there's a, it's, it, it must be the time because 
we've had a lot of Mormon people visiting um, and we've had a number of studies. Some have become Christians, which has been really cool. And then I want to share about the one. Yeah, the one young man um, who did become a Christian, the 21 year old guy, he was only baptized five years ago into the Mormon church by his grandfather, who's a teacher. And so this was not a small thing at all. But no, and the, the Mormons, if you go into that, they like being called LDS. The LDS in their church history museum, the very first display is they say, we believe the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Book of Mormon are all, all inspired by God. So nobody ever told this young man when he got baptized into the, that Mormon church that he should stop reading the New Testament too. So he read the Book of Mormon beside the New Testament all the time. And the more he read it, the more he's like, wait a minute, these don't agree at all on his own. Yeah. So he Googled us and showed up at one of our park services uh, because he was looking for just a Bible church. Because he said, if I have to do the Book of Mormon and the Bible, what's got more facts behind it? What's been around longer? I've got to go with the Bible when they disagree. So I got to find a Bible church. So that was how that guy, and I think a lot of Mormons are probably in that situation, you know? Yeah, th there's another guy, just, just to describe that, Mormonism is really still going on. One of the guys uh, that was just over here the other day was sharing that his grandfather is a polygamist and he has six wives and they- it's, 43 it's, aunts and uncles. That's how, and I mean, I looked at him, I'm like, it's real. It's like, he's like oh yeah, they all have their own house right over there and his is in the middle. And so anyway, but he's, he's another one that's like, I truly, uh, I really want to know what the Bible says. And I think that's, that's the thing, the, the, Bible is what's convincing them and because they still have it around their LDS worship. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. When you guys came back, I remember like what, you know, in our communication, I could, I could tell there was a lot of intensity. You must have had a plan, like a one-year plan or like, I'm going to go after this. What was your plan coming back to have like an impact? I have 13 baptisms. I would guess that the church had probably not been having baptisms prior up leading up to um, your coming. The church was shrinking. What was your plan coming into it to really uh, turn it around? <laughs> well, if there's one thing that I've kind of learned being in all kinds of different places is that the same things work. It's the Bible, it's praying, it's sharing your faith, but it's also finding those flammable few. And then the, where, where kind of the, the mission comes in is to figure out what is unique with these people and their cultural background. And um, I've made some mistakes in studying with some of these people in not studying some more religious topics intentionally. Like I was used to converting atheists for a long time. And I had to realize that these people already have a faith mm -hmm. and many of them already have a love for God, right? And to respect that and to... Um, learn how to study in a little bit different way, adding some studies and going a bit deeper. Um, but what, what I, the plan was just simply to do that and to try to get the church um, to multiply the leadership. We started off with telling the core group that you know, our philosophy is that the core group has to be a model to be imitated for the whole church. That if everybody in the church was living like this couple is in the core group, um, in the mission, uh, in discipling, confessing their sin, helping other people grow, um, loving lost people, you know, then the church would go forward. What, what we're not used to is a core group where they're just leaders who out of their own wisdom and experience lead a church, but aren't leading by example. So that was the first plan is to get all of the core group being the, the example for the church. And they've done 
marvelously and are incredible companions with us in in the mission together. But it, it's but it took some it took some leaps of faith on their part. So when we came, we decided we're going to have we call them life talks in the park, and um, not necessarily Bible talks, although we use the Bible. But we just call it a life talk, and we were going to meet every Friday night, bring a picnic, bring your friends. We'll have a talk about a very broad topic, and then we'll play volleyball. And it did, it took a step of faith. Some of them were like, every week, should we do it every week? And we're like, yeah, we'll do it every week. So we just started. And I think especially for the young people, we would just go around, share our faith um, throughout the week and on that night. And people loved it. And I, I do appreciate the way Chris has, has, we make them a bit broader. We always use the scriptures, but there are topics like, should I always forgive? Or what makes, how, do, how, how to be a good friend? you know what, is, what is evil and where did it come from that kind yeah. of thing yeah and and we have the discussion and we have a lot of fun and that is where those ele- first 11 baptisms came really quickly in the fall it's pretty amazing so you did that last summer uh-huh last yeah when did you arrive i'm sorry we got here about now middle of may yeah. last year wow and we're picking up again now we're starting the life talks now okay mm-hmm. so essentially you had like a church-wide bible talk and for anyone who wanted to join or was yep. it like strongly encouraged or just if you want to come in, bring a friend? Yeah, we, we told people what it was. And since we were new on the block, you're not going to start ordering the church around. Yeah. But we said, this is what it is. And this is the topic. And the first week we had maybe 20 Christians of the 57, 58 came and we had like four visitors. But we had such fun and the discussion was going on, like even the Christians were like, wow, the, you know, w- what a question. And oh, you know, they really got into it. So the, the buzz kind of got out there. So the next next week, there was like 30 from the church and like 10 visitors. And it ended up by the end of the summer that we would probably have 35 or 40 from the church and 20 visitors. Wow. That's kind of, that was kind of the standard of what was happening. How so. awesome is that? That's a great idea. Wow. Okay. So what you're saying there is that you didn't have necessarily a master plan other than just going to preach the Bible, set an example, find other people that want to work with you. You call them the flammable few. Yeah. Find partners that are... Well, and specifically, we're going to get the core group to be really an example in discipling each other and being open with each other and getting in each other's lives. And then being a friend of sinners and, right. and get the core group, all examples in that, and that'll affect the church. Okay. That was the one specific we had in mind. Let's imagine there's a church that's around that size, somewhere between 50 and 100, and has been stagnant for a while, whether through COVID or just simply through age and other reasons. What advice would you give them? How, how can they get their church activated going forward? Give me a one, two, three. I love, I love little bullet points. What, what? I know you're an engineer, Chris. So you, I know you, you can break this down for me. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I had these conversations with a couple people over the last couple of years, and one of the questions I ask is, "Are you inspired by yourself?" I'd ask the church leader, <laughs> and a lot of times they're simply not, but they're not doing anything to inspire themselves, you know. And um, they also get off the. Somehow they think that you can stop evangelizing at some point and the church will still know that they're supposed to do that. No, an evangelist evangelizes. So um, I think that a lot of time, the, the few people believing that Jesus took 12 to influence the world, he really believed a small group 
doing the right thing, imitating Jesus can impact the world. And instead of trying, let me try to move all 55 of my Christians. No, find this small group, inspire yourself, get yourself doing the right thing. And um, then get the rest. And sometimes if you haven't been doing the right thing for a while, there's a need to just go out to the church and say, I'm sorry, I just haven't been an example for like eight months, you know, but I'm, I'm going to start like I did yesterday. I started yesterday and I'm going to keep going. Whoever want to be with me, that'll be great. I think that's, that's one of the things. And I think that um, making, making the, the Bible alive, the thing that's been very encouraging here is unlike in Sweden, where I have to have this really fancy PowerPoint and have to tie it into all kinds of current examples and everything else like that. These people here just love the Bible and, but it made alive and practical and exciting and current and uh, really believing that it has the power to change lives. Um, and I think then the, the other thing is the main, the main guy can't ever get away from being with the young people. I don't care if you're an old fogey or not, be a fossil. You still need to get out there and be with these young people. Mm. Yeah. Hospitality is the last thing I'd say a ton of that where there's food and there's family, people will come, Yeah. you know, Kim. Uh, I just totally agree. Um, I think, you know, it, the life talk went so well. We're starting to now help, help. We, we eventually want to have a North region and a South region and the park city uh, area. And so, um, you know, people haven't had quite the faith to kick it off themselves. So we've gone up there. Okay. We're going to have a wine and salsa night, bring all your friends. We're going to have start the life talk in park city, just being there with them, scheduling ourselves in has lifted their faith and, made them see wow this is actually really cool and so we're, we're starting to kick off now the, the three areas like that um and then we'll still keep our the, the young the yo, yo pros if you will life talk going as well wow so that's kind of our overall plan <laughs> <laughs> this this is i mean this is really awesome okay so this life talk um, like a traditional bible talk like you discuss you you'll, you'll ask a question and have people respond sitting around legs akimbo or something like that what, what are we talking yeah well like well, the way it is in the park since there's so many people i stand up usually so and then if people have their lawn chairs around and then and then the inner side inside they spread out their blankets so people are on blankets or whatever usually show up about 6 30 to eat at seven ish we we kick off the topic um and uh what was the one that i talked about where it was about values i talk about um yeah what is a good person that was one that drew a lot big crowd. What is a good person? And then I, I do some research that's like um, psychological research they've done around the world. What are shared values for character in all cultures in all time that were considered good? And that was some you know doctoral dissertation. I read some guy's stuff and I had some stuff to throw out there about what are shared values around the world and what do you think? And you know, eventually we get around to, uh, you know, Jesus didn't call anybody good. You throw out some scripture, why is that? And you talk about it. Uh, and then you make an application at the end, you're done in about 45 minutes. And then um, we play volleyball and the people want to still talk, we're available there. And then people come up and want to talk some more about, about those kind of things. But, and all the young people have a ton of fun. That's wow. what it is. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Okay. So going forward, what are your plans for Salt Lake City? I'm assuming you're, you're planning on staying there for the long term through retirement. That's what we're thinking of so far. Okay. If they'll have us, I mean. Now, going into the second year, anything, you have any changes or 
upgrades, anything else that you're thinking about for the church? Well, we, uh, we started a group early in the year where I started actively training a small group of men to preach. Um, and like very systematic, this is the way you put together a good sermon. Um, and I have them, we've, we've, um, do expository preaching. We're just finishing the Sermon on the Mount so that they're given a topic, they're given a passage of scripture. It's not just those share from your latest quiet time. A lot of these sermons I've done some outlines to before. So to get the guys to do well, I give them some, some meat to start to work with um, so that they don't have to come up with it all on their own, but then learning how to do it in a, in a good way. That's important because we want to, as Kim mentioned, we want to, this is a long, skinny church geographically, mm -hmm. and we can drive easily 60 or 70 miles to a study one way. Yeah. So we want to get a northern region going, a central region where the city is, a southern region, and then up in the mountains where the ski areas are around Park City. So that's what we're moving toward, but you got to have preachers and teachers and people who were in on studies with all the leaders in those areas. So they learn how to study with people and multiply themselves. So we're equipping who are the potential leaders to each of those regions. That's what we're trying to do. Mm. Um, great, great plan. And, and then the, ult the ultimate goal is like to actually saturate the whole state of Utah that uh, I think the goal is at some point to every single person in Utah is less than an hour drive from a Bible talk. That would be awesome if we could do that. Right. So, right. That's great. Okay. What, what advice would you give for a person who wants to make their life count? It's clear that you guys have spent your life for the mission. I, I don't know if this is revolutionary, but I think to really see what we can do that we're Americans, not Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like go take the adventure in faith. It, it you know it doesn't matter your age or your ability or anything. God is bigger, and I that was our mantra in in Sweden. God is bigger than COVID. Stop having fears. You know, like God is bigger than you, and to have that faith to to take the opportunities that come your way and and live your life to the full and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Going on with what my wife said, uh, you know. Um, I think it was the first thing we ever preached to the church here when we did a sample sermon, but that's this whole idea. You know, in Mark 14, it's the Passover came and all this. Jesus is at Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those who were present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She did what she could. Yeah. Okay? And if Jesus wasn't saying like, eh, she did what she could. He's like, you know, what she could do, she did it, man. Yeah. And maybe her only prized possession in her whole life was this jar of perfume. That was her only thing. And it was expensive and she couldn't halfway do it. Like, you know, she had to break this jar and her whole attitude, Jesus loved. She had one thing she could do and she did it, you know? And I think that that's, you, you, every church has the Holy spirit there. Every church has the word. Every church has willing souls. Um, that might not be all the people might not be the majority of people, but there's a, there's a, she did what she could part to any church. Yeah. And to focus on that, it, God always multiplies that, always. 
So that's what I, I agree with my wife there. <laughs> Chris and Kim, thank you so much for your time. And, and it's so inspiring to hear what you're doing in Salt Lake City, what you've done in the past and continue to do going forward. Uh, may God's blessing just continue to rest on you guys. And so we're happy that you guys are closer to us. I know in the West it's not seems close, but not really, probably about a 1,000 miles, but it seems like uh, you're practically neighbors, and I look forward to crossing paths in the future. So thank you. Thanks for having thank us, you. man. Love you, bro. Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no-regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.